You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I am Carlos Noche and I'm joined by my outstanding podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, folks. <laughs> Today, we're talking about sales compensation, a sensitive topic for many. Are we paying our reps too much? Are we paying them too little? Are we encouraging the right behaviors? And to help us out with this very important hot topic today, we have Reese Bacon, sales effectiveness and compensation expert with almost 30 years experience in his field, currently director of sales effectiveness practice at Buck. Reese works with clients to identify and remove obstacles standing in the path of their success. Reese, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you, Lisa and Carlos. Glad to be here. Awesome. All right, Reese. So here's a question we use to get our audience to know you a little bit better, and it's a little off the cuff. What's something that you're passionate about that those that only really know you through work or business might be surprised to know about you? Retirement. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Where was the uptick on that? You should have laughed sooner. No, I, the thing that I am most passionate about is networking. Now, what do I mean by that? I just love talking to people. I'll talk to anybody about any topic, anytime, anywhere. And I'm always learning as a result of that. And I just find that simply by networking, stuff happens. What do I mean? Opportunities pop up. They don't pop up immediately. Sometimes they do but they ultimately pop up and they pop up indirectly. So the person I'm talking to, they may talk to somebody else. Hey, I met this guy and you maybe want to talk to him. And I can't trace back that I was introduced to that person directly from that person. But I know that's what happens. And I've been doing it for 30 years. And that's how I develop business. And it's the easiest way to do it, actually. 100% agree, Reese. That's also been... Yeah. One other point I'll make, if you look at my tagline on my LinkedIn profile, it says it all. Mm -hmm. And I did that. Once you stopped selling, you started closing. Exactly. So that's what I'm passionate about. That's fantastic. And I fully agree. That's also how I built my business from the ground up was all from relationships that I built and maintained over the years. So can't say enough folks about networking. And it's a great hobby to have as far as, you know, something to be passionate about. So Reese, I mean, that aside, or that could be a big part of it as well, but we're just curious a bit about your background. You've got a lot of experience in your field and you've done a lot of things in your career. So can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yes. So, and I won't belabor this, but very briefly. So I started out as a, so I went to college to learn foreign languages so that I could be an interpreter. And after my second Spanish class, I found out, oh my God, I can't stand sitting here with a dictionary and translating. It was driving me crazy. If I had Google now, it would be a different story, but I didn't have that back then. So I'd always been interested in psychology. And so I migrated over into psychology and I majored in that and I graduated and then I graduated. And of course I found out, well, you got to have a PhD to make any money. 
So then I said, well, okay, forget that. I think I'll go into business. So I went in and my first job was in HR and I played around with that. And then I went, I worked for a bunch of companies. I worked for a bunch of hospitals. I worked for a publishing company. I worked for Rockwell International and I got transferred to Chicago and then I got laid off. And then I got this wonderful job in California with, I was living in Chicago at the time and I got this job with Clorox in California and I moved out there and they paid for my MBA at University of San Francisco and I was doing compensation work there. And then I said, okay, I think I want to go into brand management. So they transferred me to brand management. So I was in brand management at Clorox for a couple of years. And then I decided I was going to go back into HR. And my boss's husband worked for HP. And at the time, HP was the Google, Facebook. It was the hot company to be to work for. And so I went and I worked for them. Then I found out that incentives, so this was in the early to late 80s, and what was happening was companies were starting to give incentives to their employees, not just to salespeople. And I thought, man, I better get on this bandwagon and I better learn about this. And the banks were all doing it at the time. So I got a job with Union Bank back in San Francisco, and I didn't have to commute down to the valley every day, which was a great thing. And so I went to work for Union Bank, then I went to Wells Fargo, and I was doing incentive design, broad-based incentive design, not just for salespeople, but for all employees. Then my father passed away. (laughs) And I thought, maybe I better go back and live in Philly. So I got a job with Cigna, and I moved back to Philly. And I got back to Philly, and I said, oh my God, I made a terrible mistake. I have to go back to California. So within two years, my boss left Cigna, got a job with Kaiser Permanente and brought me back out to San Francisco. And then she left there and went to Mercer and took me into consulting. And I had always wanted to go into consulting. So that's my story. And I've been consulting for for the bulk of my career now. Yeah, I was a job hopper for many years, but I was doing it intentionally because I knew that when I went into consulting, I didn't want to be pigeonholed in an industry or a particular job or a particular function. I wanted to have kind of like my MBA was in finance. So I kind of can talk all these different languages and it really helps in consulting because I don't know if I'm talking to a CFO or a head of marketing or a head of sales or the CEO or head of HR. It doesn't matter. It's like I can translate what they're saying for them, translate the marketing to the sales guy if they can't talk to each other. So I find that actually very helpful. So that's my background. Excellent. So let's start simple and kind of level set for our listeners. What do you mean by sales effectiveness? Carlos, that's a very good question. So it means a lot of different things. If you put five people, 10 people in a room, you're going to get 10 different definitions. The way I think of it is I'm just helping a head of sales or even more broadly, I'm helping the CEO make sure that he or she is extracting the most value out of the sales organization. That's basically what it comes down to. And value is defined differently by different clients and different CEOs. They think of it differently, but I have to get in and understand that business. And that's what I love about this is you just get exposure to so many different businesses 
and even businesses in the same industry are so different and so unique. So nothing is ever the same. There's some general patterns that you observe over time, but there's always these unique nuances to the company, the culture, the philosophies, the strategy, the process, the systems they operate with. They're just everywhere and they're different. And so every time I go into a client, it's like a new playpen that I go work in. So that's what I mean by sales effectiveness. Agreed. Yeah, it's helping the sales leader extract his most value out of the sales organization to the benefit of either the shareholders or the stakeholders in the case of a private company where they don't have shareholders. Okay. Are we talking about any particular industry or market segment that you focus on? Because I'm with you. Me and Lisa get to work with all sorts of different companies and industry. It's part of what we love. But as I was preparing for this thing and I thought about compensation, for example, it could be very different between an enterprise software sales rep and a manufacturer's rep selling a product. Yeah. And Carlos, over the nearly 30 years of doing this, working across different industries, there's two in particular that have just had a lot of prominence for a couple of reasons. I'll explain why in a minute. But let's take health insurance. I've done just 20 different projects in that industry with different carriers. And the reason for that is I had worked for Cigna and I had worked for Kaiser. And so I got literally, I was working inside those businesses. And so I got a very, very deep understanding of how they operate, the jobs that are there and how they operate. And so it was easy for me to sell into those types of businesses simply because I could relate, I could speak their language. And then the second one is technology, simply because I live in San Francisco and that's 90% of the businesses here. Just over time, that's what you get, okay? And then I've just had a smatter, and then I've had a lot of consumer product companies, not the least of which is Pepsi. It's probably my best example. And that goes back to my marketing experience. I understand those businesses from having, you know, I was at Clorox for six years, so you get pretty well understanding how a consumer product company works. So those are probably my three, but then financial services, banks, because I was in banks for five years, hospital systems, because I was in hospitals for two years, no, three years, and then HP was technology. So that's where I've been. I can usually figure out a business, or I can relate it to another business that's not exactly the same, but there's enough counterintuitive parts of it that I can draw some parallels to. That's a great variety of industry and experience. So I've got to ask, when you're working with all of these teams, what are some of the top challenges that you're seeing them face today, from lead generation to closing rates to ideal customer profiles? Like, what are you seeing? Yeah. So Lisa, that's another good question. So what I see is the fundamental issue is talent. (laughs) What do I mean by that? They can't get and keep either enough or the right talent to drive the revenue. And even if they do, then there's all these other barriers to how they're going to keep them. Are they, it's not just the comp, it's what is my boss like? Is he or she easy to work with or do they make my life miserable? Do I like the employees that I'm working with? That is huge, okay? 
And do I like the mission? I mean, especially for the younger generation, they want to know about the mission of the company. They don't care about making money. Well, they do, but it's not my generation that was all about profit, profit, profit. They want to work for a company that they can relate to. And I totally understand that. I mean, I wish I had been like that when I was a young kid, you know? God bless them. So I guess that's how I would answer that question, okay? Is that it fundamentally goes back to talent that, you know, if you can't get the talent, you can't grow the revenue. And so what are you doing to take care of the talent? And that's what you see these topics on blogs and everywhere. It's like, well, how do we get talent? And how are we going to get talent in the future? Because we have all these potential problems where it's not going to be available. Oh, by the way, have you seen those recent articles where they talk about pulling back retirees into the workforce? Now, that's going to be interesting. Yes. And is that all, do you feel like that's due to the, what was it called? That movement of silent quitting or whatever? And how after COVID, young people, Quiet quitting, that's what it was. I knew it was something that rhymed. But yeah, do you believe that that's why? Is like people, young people aren't coming back to the workforce? Well, I think it's part of that. But as I talk to the younger generation, and I talk to a lot of people because I do focus groups, it's just that they envision a life differently than the way in which my generation or Gen X's envisioned their life. It's not... My life was, well, you worked, you got married, and you had kids. Okay, well, their life isn't like that. It's like, no, I'll work, but I want to have experiences. And maybe I'm going to have kids, but maybe I'm not going to have five kids. I'm, maybe I'll have one or two. And maybe I'm not even going to be married my whole life. <laughs> so it's just a whole different way of envisioning how their lives are going to unfold which again, I think is really cool. You know, it's like, hey, go ahead and find what's going to make you happy. Don't go with the standard conventional wisdom. It's not going to work for you. Do what you got to do. So, Okay, so let's dive a little bit into some detail. What might be some of the key factors or features in a well-designed compensation plan that does bring out the best in the sales team? Also keeping in mind that I not only have millennials and Gen Zs, but I got I still got some Gen Xers and maybe even baby boomers on my payroll as well. So it's a multiple generations I'm also dealing with in my workforce. So one of the first things I would guess it would be that the opportunities that I have sufficient opportunities to earn off of whatever incentive plan I've got. What do I mean by that? Well, a lot of times the opportunities you have, you're in a market that doesn't have a lot of opportunities, okay? So then you get frustrated. Or you could be in a market that is overwhelming with opportunities and you're working like crazy to cover them because they didn't give enough staff in that market and so it's all falling on you, okay? Now that can be good and bad. You can earn a lot of money, but you're working like crazy. So it's balancing the opportunity with the earnings so that things are kind of like fair. And then also having a product that is acceptable, that the market is acceptable, that the market likes. What if you're trying to sell something that's really, really hard? Well, maybe you don't want to be there. There again, goes back to the mission. You know, am I selling stuff that I can believe in, that I like? 
that the market likes, that I can be passionate about. I don't like passion. Let's say, what's another word for passion? That's overused. I can be more- Enthusiastic? Yeah, enthusiastic. (laughs) That's a good word, Lisa. That I can be enthusiastic about and like I want to get out of bed every day and go work. I think those are really important considerations and that you are paying me competitively. You're not underpaying me, but you're also not overpaying me, but you're paying me well for what you're asking me to do. And I think people just want to be reasonably paid. And I think they want to work. They don't want to be crazy. And they also want to have flexibility. So if you let me work from home or you let me be hybrid or you give me some flexibility there, I'm going to be a happy camper and I'm going to work hard for you because you're trying to accommodate me. It's a two-way street and we're going to balance each other. And I don't see why that wouldn't work. And I don't see why that's hard to achieve. So a lot of your comments, though, they seem to be focused from the employee perspective. For the employer perspective, hey, we, the products we have are the products we have and the market is the, what the market is. So what might be some of the compensation features up from their perspective to attract the right talent for their current situation? Well, Carlos, quite frankly, I think it is just kind of the same thing. If you've got products that the market's not excited about, why are you in that business? What are those products doing for the market? What are those products doing for the customer? What customer is serving? I mean, these are like fundamental questions, okay? So it's not a disconnect. Unless you're just going to be, again, all you care about is profits and you don't care how you're going to achieve them, well, then can you expect to get the best talent because that talent that's the best doesn't want to work for you, (laughs) okay? Like, open your ears, open your eyes. You're clueless, like you're tone deaf. You need to start, I'm sorry, I just, I don't know. To me, it's pretty simple. It's not real complicated. Okay, so let me give you a answer to this question. Yeah. So, I mean, in sales, traditionally, a lot of us always think about sales reps as being coin-operated. I get the statement, but let's face it, today, I think it's, A, it's we've been more than just coin-operated for a long time, and today's generation is definitely more than just coin-operated. So what might be some of the compensation drivers that really drive the right behaviors within our sales force because we also want them to represent our brand in a certain way. We want them to engage our buyers in a certain way. We want them to capture certain data that allows us to properly qualify and forecast a deal. How do we make compensation actually promote those behaviors? Yeah. So after doing this for so long, Carlos, I have to challenge the conventional wisdom that sales reps are coin operated. And Let me tell you why I'm going to do that and what evidence I have that may challenge it. I met a gentleman. I don't know if I can say his name. I'd like to be able to say it here, but I better not. He's really a great guy. He's very prominent on LinkedIn. And I met him and I offered to do a review of his sales incentive plan. And I was going to do it for free. I was going to say, hey, Justin, I'll just look at your plan and give you some ideas. And he came back and said, Reese, would you still want to talk to me if I told you we didn't have a sales incentive plan? And I like my eyes opened up and I said, I want to talk to you even more. And we had a conversation. He said, yeah, Reese, we got rid of our sales incentive plan five years ago 
because we were finding out that it was creating all kinds of problems we couldn't manage. And my CEO and I got into a room one day and we said, we're getting rid of it. We're going to raise everybody's base salary, pay them really, really well, have them focused on the client, and we will train our sales leaders to manage performance. If people do not like this environment, we will encourage them to leave. We will replace them with a different type of sales mentality, which they did. It took them five years on this journey, but they finally got there and he's convinced this is the way to go. And I've since then found a couple of other examples like this. They're not very common, but there are some companies that have eliminated sales incentives and they have very happy people. They have very productive people. They don't have high turnover. They don't have burnout. And so Justin and I did a presentation at a conference last August in Chicago, and I set it up as a debate and a discussion. We had 80 people, and some people were naysayers. Some people, my God, we never thought about it before. And then other people said, well, maybe that'll work, or maybe that won't work. And what I was trying to do was just get people out of their paradigm. Think differently. Don't change. Just think about this, okay? Is this something that could happen in five years or 10 years? Is this something that is ultimately going to happen, okay? And we're on the cusp of a potential new trend. And again, the intent was to just get people to think about it, which we were able to accomplish. So I was glad that we did it. And I would love to do it again. I'd love to have another follow-up discussion, but we'll see. So what do you think about that? That's really interesting. Isn't it? It's really interesting because one of the questions I, that popped into my head was that, and you kind of addressed it in the fact that you said that they just went and found a different persona, like a person it went that fit that model because typically sales teams are built on a competitive hunter mentality. So when you take away those sales incentives, what happens then? You know, So it sounds like they had great success, but typical culture is very competitive. Well, now, Lisa, the competition shifted from me and you in the company to me and you against our competition, okay? Why should I be fighting with you inside my company? We're going to work together to beat the competition. So employees support each other in that environment. If somebody's sick, they jump in and help them. Well, when they're on incentives, they don't do that because they can't afford to, okay? Hmm. And the other thing that Justin found is that as he would be out recruiting, he would find people. They didn't want to sign up for that system. They wouldn't sign up. Six months later, they would take another job. Six months later, they would come back and say, Ooh, Justin, I think I might want to try your system. I don't like what I had in this other job. So he was actually able to get some of those people who had initially declined him to come back into the fold, which I thought was very telling. Okay. So here's a hypothesis I have. I have no data to test it. I just think we have created the monster that we have. What do I mean by that? We have created salespeople to think and do the way they were. That's not natural. 
We've created that. Can we change it back? Because it's not natural. I want you to think about it, okay? I'm one of those guys, I'm thinking all the time. I don't have the answers, but I'm not ready to put my ideas cast in stone that nothing changes. I just learned too much over the years. I don't know anything, <laughs> okay? What I, I'm always learning something new. What I think I know, I find that I find some counter information that negates it. I know a lot, but I don't know everything. So I just think we have to constantly challenge conventional wisdom and think about these assumptions we operate under because I don't know that they're all valid. Okay. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I just like, um, it's running through my head that like, why would people push back on that system? Do they think it's because it limits their earning potential, even though they're making really good money? Because if they're a really good sales rep, they have potentially unlimited earning potential. So in that case, it's like, okay, I don't want to handcuff myself to a base pay, even if it's a good one. So is that what Justin was finding as far as the people that were denying him? Yes. Some people And here again, Lisa, I'm not sure this works everywhere. Okay. I'm not suggesting that it works everywhere, but it can work in a lot of places that it's not working now. And whether or not it will ultimately ever work in the future, I don't know. Like my generation's not going to adopt it, okay? They're already stuck in how they've been doing things. The generation right behind me is not going to do it. They're stuck. They're legacy. But I do think that there is some hope in these younger generations, God bless them, that they want to operate differently. And so maybe it's going to work for them. And maybe certain industries are better than others and certain jobs are better than others. But I don't want to discount it. You know what I mean? It's like if it works, use it. If it doesn't, don't use it. But I want it as an alternative. I want it as something to think about. Okay. I mean, if somebody comes to me and says, Reese, we're having this kind of problem, this kind of problem, this kind of problem, this kind of problem. And I come up and I say, have you ever thought about this? And then they say, oh, that'll never work. Well, okay. What are you doing about your problem? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, see, I want to entertain that discussion to start thinking about some of these assumptions that you think can't be changed. Okay. That's all I want to say. That's all I want to say. So. You know, whether they're on a variable comp plan or a fixed comp plan, like in your example, behind the scenes, and you kind of alluded to this, is you still got to measure what matters because if you're not performing, you know, neither plan's working, right? Exactly. So any best practices on aligning compensation to business goals and objectives? Yeah. So to that point, Carlos, let me finish that thought. A lot of companies use their compensation plan as a management tool. Now, what do I mean by that? They don't actually manage the field. They just let the comp plan do it. So my question to that is, well, gee, if you're letting the comp plan manage your field, why do I need you? (laughs) You're not (laughs) using the plan to manage. I don't need you. Okay. So what is leadership doing when they're doing that? Okay, so it kind of goes along the same line. So if the company still has goals and objectives to survive, right? Whether it's revenue or whatever you want to call it, what are some best practices to align that comp to it? And if it's a flat compensation, for example, let's entertain that, you still got to manage those numbers and kind of share that behavior. Yes, so 
most companies, I won't say every company, it's always a top-down goal-setting process. And what I mean by that is somebody sits up at corporate, either in marketing or sales or both, or the CEO, they look at, they project what the market is going to grow by. They look at the share that they want to have of that market, and then they back into an aggregate number that they say they want to achieve. And this is what they're going to tell the shareholders so that they can make them happy. Okay. Then somebody says, oh, okay, well, here's the goal. That's fine. Now they start allocating it down the structure. Okay. But they don't allocate it fairly. They give everybody the same goal when John in the West Coast, maybe that goal doesn't work over there because the opportunities aren't as good. Or they give the same goal in Florida where the opportunities are a plethora set of opportunities, got the same goal. This guy's going to earn a lot more money because he's got an easier goal. So that's what is bad. What is better is when there is an iterative top down and bottom up. What do I mean by that? The bottom up is you literally ask the sales rep to tell you what he thinks is going on in the market. Now, he's always going to sandbag and he's going to say, well, there's not that many opportunities and there probably is more. So you have to test that against the top down. But that's what I'm saying in this iterative process where there's a feeding up, there's a an evaluation and a top down, and then somewhere something is met in the middle so that they've had some input to their goal. It's not just dictated. They've had some input. They may not get exactly what they want, but they had the input. And when I talk to sales reps, that's all they want. They want to be part of the process. They don't want to be left out of the process because they know what's going on in the local market. Who knows better than the rep in the local market? Again, you have to test it. You can't take it as gospel, but you want that input because now you can at least say, well, you know, Johnny's right. There's just not that much opportunity here. His goal can't be that way. Sally over here, well, she's got a lot of opportunity. Her goal's just going to have to be bigger. Sorry. And Johnny's going to have to work harder to hit his goal than Sally does over here. So there again, you got to kind of balance that so that they're not going crazy and earning too much. And there's ways to do mechanics in the comp plan to accomplish that. And that's actually what I help a client do is manage that so that they can set reasonable goals to keep people roughly equal for equal opportunity and for equal effort. You don't want people working too hard. You don't want them fluffing off and but you want them to earn fairly. Okay. On that note, lots of great gems you've shared with us, Reese, and uh, got to change direction a little bit here because I'm sure we could talk about this all day long. We ask all of our guests a couple of standard questions towards the end of each interview. And the first is that as a revenue executive yourself for many, many years, you are a prospect for sales professionals. So help our audience understand what would potentially actually get your attention and even maybe elicit a response if you were to receive a cold outreach. So I always take a call and here's why. Okay. <laughs> Out of respect to another sales professional. So what does that mean? That means, look, this guy's got to earn money. Um, we're kindred spirits. I try to be very quick and say, look, buddy, I'm not your buyer. <laughs> okay, here's a potential buyer. And if I can get you introduced, I'll introduce you to them. 
but I'm not your buyer, okay? But I will at least be respectful and respond to them and let them know they're wasting their time or they're not. Now, some of them will be very aggressive and they won't take that initial response. (laughs) So I'll have to go one step further and say, look, buddy, I told you I'm not, okay? So I'm not going to be able to help you. And aren't you glad that I at least gave you a response rather than ghosting you and not saying anything? So that's my way of getting around that is trying to be fair. And then the other thing I try to do is if I don't think I'm the buyer, I try to figure out, oh, well, who potentially could be or who could I refer the guy to, the guy or person, who could I refer them to that might be a potential buyer? So I try to help. And like, we should all do that. Just like when I put a proposal in and then I get ghosted from a salesperson. How why do you do that? I don't do that to somebody that does that. That's just not professional. It's not courteous. I would never do that. So that's how I handle that. Does that make sense? It does. Great point. <laughs> yeah. I don't think many people do that either. No, they don't. You're right. Everybody seems to be too busy these days, and then they treat others the way they wouldn't want to be treated themselves. I know, which is just counterintuitive to me. And I might be guilty of a little bit of that myself. Yeah. All right. Last question. Call it Acceleration Insight. Hey, what's your one last piece of advice, be it business or personal, for our listeners that'll help them achieve their own goals? So this is going to sound cliche and curt, or curt, but I guess I can only say this now at this stage of my career is I wish to God I hadn't stressed out anywhere near what I did earlier in my career. Because now I look back and I say, why did I stress out on that? My God, it all worked out okay. And yes, I had problems and yes, I had challenges, but you know what? I always like overcame them somehow. So please, if there's any, I know it's going to go on deaf ears because you're just younger and you just think this way and you worry and but it does work out. And like, I'm proof of the pudding. It ultimately works out. So de-stress. Perfect. Good advice, Reese. So if a listener was interested in learning more about the topics we talked about today or anything else that you're an expert in, where should they go to contact you? What's your preferred method of communication? So I'm on all forms of social media. (laughs) So you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Reese Bacon on LinkedIn. So I'm easy to find. Or you can say Reese Bacon at Buck. And that LinkedIn search is not that good, actually. But if you even plug me into Google, I'll pop up. But I also have an Instagram account, which is it don't make no never mind. I know that sounds weird, but I literally tried every possible handle and it wouldn't accept any of them until I put that one in and then it accepted it. <laughs> And then I'm also on... Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm on Facebook and I'm on TikTok, but probably LinkedIn is the best place to find me. All right. Reese, well, cannot thank you enough for joining us today. It's We realize how valuable your time is and it's been great having you on the show. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Carlos. And thank you, all the listeners. I hope that you got some value out of this. Sure did. All right. 
Yeah, I think everybody did. Lots of gems in this one. So, all right, everyone, that does it for this episode. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share this episode with your friends, your family, your kids, your dogs. Get them off their screens for just a little while. And you can subscribe to us through YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and throw us a five-star review on iTunes. I'm Lisa Schneer. I'm joined by my crazy podcast partner, Carlos Noche. And until next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.